guys look good. Thank you so much for being here. All, all dressed up and looking nice. Uh, don't get used to the tie if you're new. It's just a one-time, once-a-year thing, so not normally. Well, happy Easter. There's something really cool that the, the Capital C Church has been doing for over 1,000 years. So we can trace it all the way back to the year 384, and that is that in front of churches all around the world, for over 1,000 years, including today, there will be pastors or lay people or just regular people getting up in front of a group of people, and there's a call and response that looks like this. And so we're going to try it. Anytime today that I proclaim, he is risen, you respond with, he is risen indeed. Let's try it again. He is risen. I think one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that we can know that we're not alone, that there are literally a billion people today that will gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus is alive and that changes everything. We truly, truly believe that he is risen. You were a little slower that time. He is risen. And so if you are here and you are a longtime church person, you come to church every single week, uh, we are so glad that you're here. Maybe you're here and you're not a church person and you're just here because some family person drug you here and you accidentally ended up here off the street. Maybe you just want some free coffee. For whatever reason, here's what I want you to understand today, that the resurrection of Jesus is not just powerful, although it is powerful, but the resurrection of Jesus is also personal. And here's what that means. That means that we can gather together as a group because of how powerful the resurrection is. That over 2,000 years later, we're still gathering together to celebrate a carpenter from 2,000 years ago. But not just is it a powerful moment in history, it's a personal moment in history. That Jesus wants to have a relationship with you and me. And if we can get a hold of the power of the resurrection, it changes everything. If we look at scripture, uh, there at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden is this word that we find. And that word that we find is the word shame. And that it says right at the beginning that God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates a garden and Adam and Eve are there. And it says that they are naked, or if you're from the South, they're naked. And it says that they have no shame whatsoever. So there's this perfect community that exists between humans. There's also this perfect community that exists with God. And then what happens? It says that they sin. They do the one thing that God tells them not to do. And as a result of that, it says that they run and they hide. And now they are full of shame. And so shame is this theme that we see that exists in the world because our world is broken because of sin. And then the entire Bible is attempting to get rid of our shame. Now what's fascinating as you all often find is that scripture is full of this truth and modern psychology backs up that truth. Uh, there's a really famous author and professor named Brene Brown and here's how she describes shame. She says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. 
In a more simplified manner, here's what Brene Brown would say shame is, anything that makes us feel unworthy of relationship. So think about your own life for a second. And if you would fill in this blank right here, that I am not blank enough. And for you, it might be, I am not successful enough. I am not smart enough. I am not rich enough. I am not good looking enough. I am not popular enough. That we all have some piece of us that we feel like is not enough. And if you were really gonna take shame and boil it down to the heart and the root of shame, it's this, it's simply, I am not enough. That I am not enough. Now, psychologists would say that the roots of that shame comes from a whole huge laundry list. This is not exhaustive, there are other things, uh, but past actions or mistakes. It might be that something happened in your life and because of that thing, you carry shame as a result. Now, one point of clarity, that guilt and shame are similar but different. Guilt is feeling bad about an event, an action, whereas shame is feeling bad about who you are. That, that guilt becomes your identity and you carry that shame around with you. And so you might have shame because you've done something in the past and you feel I've done something so wrong that I'm unworthy of having a relationship. Whether that's with family or friends or with God, your shame could come from your body image, could be from your family. Have you ever been embarrassed to introduce your family to somebody? You don't want anybody else to know that you're from that family. Maybe you just have some one family member and you say, well, I'm ashamed of them. Maybe it's your career. Your career didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. You weren't as successful as you were hoping. Maybe it's your finances. It's not lost on me that the United States of America has massive amounts of consumer debt. Why? Could it be that we so desire to be accepted by the people around us that we are willing to spend money that we don't have in order to look a certain way, to fit in a certain way, so that maybe we would be worthy and feel connection? Could be social interactions, could be past trauma that you've experienced, it could be addiction that you have. Now, ultimately, shame is a result of broken social norms that our culture says, hey, this is normal. This is the way that you're supposed to act. This is the way that you're supposed to be. This is the way that you're supposed to look. And if you break those norms, we shame those people. I remember when I was in junior high, my younger sister was, she is about two years younger than me. And she came home from school one day, immediately went up into her room, closed the door, and then we did not hear from her for a few hours. So dinner time rolls around and they start calling for my sister Beth to come downstairs and she just says, no, and she won't come down. I mean, repeatedly calling, come down, come down. She's locked herself in her room. She's, she's just adamant that she will not come out. Now a little backstory that we found out later is that that day when she was at school and I remind you, she was in junior high and junior high is a really hard time for anybody. But while she was there, Someone told her that her eyebrows looked like Bert. Now, for those of you <laughs> that are lost on what that means, this is Bert and Ernie. And back in the day, if someone told you that you had Bert's eyebrow, singular, not plural, then, then that was a pretty cut to the heart cut down. And so someone had told her that she looked like that. 
And so she goes home as a junior high girl. And the moment she gets home, she goes into the bathroom and she finds one of those mirrors that is two-sided. That on one side, you look at yourself in the mirror and you look like a normal human being. But if you flip that mirror to the other side, bam, your face becomes a hundred times bigger than what it is supposed to be. Now, there should be an age minimum that we require for people to use those mirrors, uh, but there wasn't and there isn't. And so she gets that mirror and she looks at her face now magnified way bigger than it is supposed to be where every pore looks giant and every pimple looks like it's about to explode. And she's staring into that giant mirror and she takes out a pair of tweezers and she starts to pluck, 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 pluck. And after a few minutes of plucking, she looks in that giant mirror and she realizes that her eyebrows are now slightly uneven that she's plucked a little bit too much on one side and not as much on the other side. And she figured, well, that's a simple solution. I will just start plucking on the other side. And so for an hour and a half with a giant mirror in her face, she plucks on the top and then the bottom and then the left and then the right. And then she looks at the other one and says, well, well now I have to do that over here. And one by one by one, she starts plucking out eyelashes. Now, a few hours later, she won't come down, she's locked in her room and eventually my mother must go up and, and have some trauma therapy where she's sitting with her and she's encouraging her and she's telling her she has to come down to dinner. My mom comes back down and she looks at me and my brother specifically in the eyes and she says, your sister is going to come down and when she does, you are not allowed to laugh. <laughs> she said, your life will end if you are not encouraging to your sister. And so when my sister comes down, originally she was wearing a beanie, a beanie pulled down all the way to her eyes, covering her eyebrows. We have a normal dinner, we have jokes and laughter. And the whole time we're trying to encourage Beth to go ahead and just lift up that beanie. Surely it can't be as bad as she thinks that it is. And I wish I could tell you that I was a good human being when I was in junior high. <laughs> but when she lifted up that beanie, I kid you not, there were about five pieces of hair on both sides. And they looked like they were just staring me in the face. And uh, I tried so hard not to laugh, but being in junior high, I laughed loudly and uncontrollably. And then as I started to laugh, it just got funnier that I wasn't supposed to be laughing. And then I was trying not to laugh and I was pretending like I wasn't laughing at her. I was like, no, it's something funny that happened in school. It's not you. I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you, it's okay. And for the next few years of her life, my sister went to school every day with drawn on eyebrows. Now, for those of you that are worried, I, I can tell you that now 30 years later, her eyebrows look great. They are fantastic. There's a good end to the story. But there was a social norm, what is expected, what is supposed to look like, she broke the social norm and she felt shame. So what does she do? She runs and she hides. You see, when we have shame in our life, here's what always happens. Shame leads to hide and go seek. The first we wanna run, we wanna hide from it. That's what Adam and Eve do in the garden. They have shame, so they run and they hide. And then it leads to go seek, that we find unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with our shame. I feel unworthy because of this piece or this part of my life. 
I'm gonna hide, I'm gonna isolate, I'm gonna remove social interactions, and then I'm going to seek an unhealthy way in order to cope with it. But oftentimes when people have an addiction in their life, when people have substance abuse in their life, that the root cause is shame, shame that they are running from. In scripture, there's a guy named Peter who is one of the closest people on earth to Jesus. That Jesus has 12 disciples, but more than the 12, he had a few disciples that were closer buddies than everybody else, namely Peter and John. And every time Jesus would go away kind of by himself, he would bring Peter and John with him. That they had this special, distinct friendship and bond with Jesus that the rest of the disciples didn't have. And so Peter, at the Last Supper, is sitting with Jesus, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, hey, Peter, you are going to deny me. Jesus is looking at him, and he's saying it with compassion and a heart, and Peter is just flabbergasted. He says, no, not me, not me, maybe these other people, but, but Jesus, I would never deny you. You're my friend, you're my rabbi. And Jesus said, you're not gonna deny me just once, but three times before the rooster crows. And so then Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he, he spends time alone in prayer with God. Then the soldiers come to arrest him. And Peter, probably remembering what Jesus had said earlier, is the first to jump up at the soldiers and he pulls out a sword and he swings at a soldier. Apparently he was really bad aim because he cuts off an ear. And Jesus actually looks at him and, and says, hey, stop, stop. He takes the ear and he heals it. But then they take Jesus and they lead him away to a trial. And Peter follows. He goes to the trial. He, he's in the crowd. And is, he's in the crowd. I'm sure he feels the tension. He feels the hatred. But the crowd is very against Jesus. And then in John chapter 18, Verses 17 and 18, it says this, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And that comes from the gospel of John and John had a firsthand account of what happened. He was super close with Jesus. As a result, he was also super close with Peter. And there's a detail in John's account that is different than the other gospels. That John mentions specifically that Peter was standing in front of a charcoal fire. Now that word charcoal fire in the Greek is only found two times in the New Testament. It's here and then we'll find it again in the last chapter. It's an interesting word to point out. It's very specific that Peter finds himself in a crowd that doesn't like Jesus and they're looking to him and they're saying, hey, wait, are you with him? And Peter denies him once, as we saw there, and then we go on to deny Jesus two other times. It's interesting that your memory and your brain, uh, the different things will cause nostalgia where you think back. Sight can do it. Taste can do it, hearing can do it. But did you know that in your brain, smell is the strongest connector to memory. And so that smell of the charcoal fire is something that is unforgettable if you've ever sat in front of one. 
Now, at the end of John, the last chapter in his gospel, chapter 21, the first nine verses, uh, the story's a little bit different. The Jesus dies on the cross, he's crucified. Peter ends up running away after denying Jesus three times. And then Jesus comes back. He rises from the dead on Sunday. As a result of that, there's a few different appearances that he makes. And then he tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to meet you by the ocean, by the sea. And this is the account of that third encounter. This is what it says. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. It's an interesting little tidbit that John throws in there. But Peter, before he knew Jesus, was a fisherman. That was his profession. And in the first century, if you were to deny your rabbi, what it would mean is that you were disavowed, disowned. You could never have a relationship with that rabbi ever again. You were no longer considered a disciple, a follower of that rabbi. And so as excited as Peter likely was of, of Jesus being alive and the resurrection, in the back of his mind, he's thinking to himself, but the future that I had at Jesus' side, it's dead, it's gone, it's over. I've denied him. And so what does Peter do? He goes back to what he used to do. And so when it says that he's going fishing, I think it's more than just going fishing. He's ashamed of what he had done and he goes back to the thing that his identity was originally in. And so what do the disciples do? It says, they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Here's what I love about that, is that Jesus knows the answer. Like he's Jesus, he knows that they have no fish. But these are his buddies and he's just messing with them. Hey, you guys catch any fish? And he's probably chuckling to himself because he's like, I know that you didn't catch any fish. And it says, they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. It's throwback to when Jesus first called Peter and some of the other disciples. The same thing happened. It says that disciple whom Jesus loved, talking about John, therefore said to Peter, is it the Lord? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. This is one of the reasons you love Peter. Peter's the most relatable guy. Peter just is full of emotion and reaction, and he doesn't think about what he's doing. He just jumps in and goes for it. And so Peter is fishing, and so he's taken off his cloak so that he doesn't get it wet while he's fishing. And then Jesus shows up, and he's so excited about Jesus being there that what does he do? He decides he's gonna jump in the water and swim to him. And what does he do first? He puts on his clothes. Most people would have been taken off, but he puts them on, and he jumps in the water. And it says the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. So we know that Peter gets there first. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. It's a long swim, by the way. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. 
just imagine if you're Peter and you're so excited that your best friend, he's alive. You're so excited that you just jump into the water and you swim to shore and, and you're just running up to him. And what is the thing that you notice? A charcoal fire. You go right up and right in front of him is this charcoal fire. And he thinks, surely that's not by accident. I mean, Jesus knows everything. And did Jesus have to have a fire? No. He could have had no fire. He could have had a wood-burning fire. He could have had a whole variety of different things. And yet he chose to have a charcoal fire. And so Peter comes up out of the water and he rushes over. And somewhere in this detail that John specifically wants to point out, is that that same charcoal fire that Peter stood in front of and smelled and felt the heat from, where he denied Jesus is gonna be the same charcoal fire that Jesus builds in order to have a conversation with Peter. All that shame comes rushing back. Then what scripture says happens next is they have breakfast. Instead of having an immediate conversation with Peter, Jesus just kind of lets it linger. And they have breakfast and they eat fish and they eat bread. And somewhere after breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter and there's a famous exchange there where Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus is looking at Peter in the eyes and you can just imagine the shame that Peter feels in front of the charcoal fire, knowing that he did the thing that he wished he wouldn't have done. And, and with pain in his eyes, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Then a second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And now more heartbroken that Jesus would have to ask again. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Just feed my sheep. Then a third time, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And we're not 100% sure why Jesus asks three times. But we can naturally speculate that just as Peter denied Jesus three times, that Jesus was going to point that out by asking him three separate times, do you love me? And now Peter's just crushed, he's heartbroken. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now it's an interesting exchange because there's two different ways to look at the exchange. Jesus intentionally has charcoal fire and he intentionally asks Peter three different times, do you love me? In order to remind him of that thing that is the most shameful thing in his entire life. And so either Jesus does that because he's just being mean. He's just being a jerk. He's just trying to twist the knife. Or Jesus does it because he knows that Peter's identity at that point in time is tied up with his shame. And Peter looked ahead to his own future and said, it's gone, it's over, I, I might as well go back to fishing. The Lord can't use me for anything. And as broken and unworthy as Peter saw himself, Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to redeem your future. Not Peter because of anything that you have done for me, but because of what I have done for you on the cross. Because Jesus died on the cross for Peter's sin, but he didn't stay dead. Because he is risen. Because he is risen. You see, Peter comes face to face with his shame and agony. And Jesus heals it. And he restores it. And then as a result of that, God uses Peter in an amazing way in the early church. That the sermon preached right after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down is preached by Peter. 
The denier of Jesus boldly gets up in front of the crowd and proclaims the truth of the resurrection. That that Peter would live a life that was marked and different. He was no longer defined by shame, but walked in worth, not because of what he had done, but because of what Jesus had done for him. One of the most powerful verses in all of scripture comes from Romans chapter eight, verse one. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation in the Greek is an interesting word. The root word there is krinos, which is the Greek word for judge. This idea of no condemnation, it's saying that no one else can judge you and you can't judge yourself if you are in Christ. You see in this life, what tends to happen is we walk around with that shame if we don't have Jesus and trying to fix that shame and hiding from that shame and coping from that shame. And God knew that by ourselves, we could never get rid of that shame. And so he sends Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me to take this shame away from us. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. He defeats death and in defeating death, he defeats our shame that we can say, if I am in Christ, no one can judge me. No one can say that I'm unworthy. No one can look at me with disgust. No, instead, not because of what I have done, but because of what he has done, I can stand boldly in front of God as a worthy child of God with no shame whatsoever because Jesus changes everything. There's a lot of different types of mirrors. There's the mirror that has the one regular side and the other side that makes your face giant. There's also the mirror, there's the full length mirror. You probably have one of these at your house. Got the full length mirror. Maybe this morning when you were getting ready for, for Easter, you used the full length mirror, checked yourself out, stood in front of it for a while. It's funny thing about mirrors though, is that the longer you stand in front of a mirror, and the more you stare at yourself, the more things you find wrong with yourself. If you ever sat in the barber, barber chair in the barber seat and you're just staring at your face for like 45 minutes and eventually you start looking at your face and you say, are, are, my, are my ears crooked? I think, I think that ear is actually higher than that ear. And then you're looking and you say, I think my nostrils are different sizes from each other. And the more you look, the more you see wrong. That's the truth of this world. That if I try and find my answer and my solution in myself, it will always come up empty because the longer I look at myself, the more I will find reasons to be ashamed. All my mistakes, all my failures, all the ways that I haven't measured up. But what Romans 8.1 says, is it says that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And so it's a transformation. It's a complete change of who I am, a complete change of my perspective where instead of making the focus of my life be me, here's what happens is I become a Christian. I put my trust and faith and life in Jesus. And as a result of that, instead of focusing on me, I focus on him. And so I'm still looking into the mirror, but it reflects back to the cross. And what the cross tells me every time I'm looking at myself is it says that I am worthy and I am loved. That those things that define me before, my identity, my shame, they're, they're dead and they're gone. 
because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And if I can change that perspective, it changes everything. You see, here's what Easter ultimately tells us. It tells us that if the tomb is empty, that anything is possible. If the tomb is empty, if Jesus is alive, anything is possible in your life and in my life because the resurrection, it is powerful, but it's not just powerful. The resurrection is also personal. That Jesus gave his life for you and for me but he didn't stay dead because he is risen. The Jesus, the power of the cross, scripture tells us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is available to you and me when we put our faith and our trust into Jesus. That Easter doesn't just have to be a Sunday one time a year that we celebrate the truth of the resurrection. No, it's a daily lifestyle to live inside of the resurrection of Jesus, to put aside my shame and walk in that victory and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that the resurrection changes everything. We thank you that the resurrection is powerful. We thank you that the resurrection is personal. God, we thank you that if the tomb is empty, it means that anything is possible. And I know that there are people that walked into this room today and they feel like they're completely worthless. They walk in carrying shame. They walk in running from that shame, isolated from that shame, seeking out unhealthy coping mechanisms from that shame. God, I pray that today they can recognize that if Jesus is alive, that anything is possible. That if they would just turn their perspective, give their heart, their life, put their trust in you, their faith in you, that instead of seeing their lack of worth and instead of seeing their shame and instead of seeing their issues and their problems and all the things wrong with them, instead they can see you. Lord, that we are worthy not because of what we have ever done, but because of what you have done for us on the cross. So Lord, I pray that we can understand the power of the resurrection in each one of our lives. In the name of Lord Jesus, we pray, amen.